Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Dr. Smith, we have the privilege of introducing today a sermon by the Reverend Dr. Laura Smith. She is professor of theology at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She's taught there since 1999. She's a theologian. She's a good scholar and writer and preacher. But the sermon we're going to hear today on the Good Samaritan was preached several years ago in a chapel series that we did called Table Grace. What are we going to hear from our friend Laura Smith? Laura Smith is going to do what preaching must uh, do and that is to take a familiar story and present something that's unfamiliar in it, to take something that is common and present an uncommon perspective. In other words, to say the same thing in a fresh new way. And, of course, this is the anxiety that she uh, initially has and that she is assigned this sermon on this text on the Good Samaritan, and she does an excellent job with it. Her key entrance into the sermon in terms of connecting with the audience is identification. She wants the hearer to identify with someone in this story. Is it the priest or the Levite? Is it the Good Samaritan? And so she asked, who are you in this particular uh, text? So that everyone has to Uh, identify with someone else, and no one has the luxury of neutrality. Barriers are important here, Dean George. Mm. They must be torn down. She redefines for us what neighborliness really is by, in essence, saying that Jesus is not going to allow these um, priests and Levites and Jews to define neighbor by saying that only Jews are neighbors, that Samaritans who uh, did not keep their ethnic purity are no longer na- are not neighbors, and in essence, that according to rabbis, there was no uh, necessity for them to help a Samaritan if a Samaritan was in trouble. I thought that her personal confession was powerful in that she could not see in her own ability uh, the possibility of relating to everyone in the world as a neighbor as Jesus will define that. However, because she confesses that, she understands that it is God who enables her, in essence, to love everyone and therefore to redefine what it means to love, and that is to love the neighbor more than one loves himself or herself, and ultimately to love God more than one loves anything else. So this redefinition is is tremendous. Um, one insight that I thought was really, really significant was that she noted that there was not a lot of emotion in this text. In fact, the emotional word seemed to be the word pity. And she said this is pity that's not passive, but very active. And so it's a redefinition of what we think love really is, romantic and emotional. 
Love for her is active, and she finally places herself in the ditch with this individual who's been robbed and left half dead, and she says, in essence, that it is the Christ who comes to her in need, has pity on her, and does for her what others will not do and cannot do. It's it's a marvelous way of saying the same thing that the text has been saying in a fresh, relevant way so that people get another facet of insight of a text that's filled with encouragement and uh, filled with responsibility. You know, this sermon by Laura Smith, it brings together the objective focus with the subjective appropriation. She begins by questioning the text, who is the good Samaritan, who's my neighbor, and before you know it, the text is questioning her and us. Exactly. So it's a sermon that really takes you to the throne of God in a very special way. Uh, I love this sermon, and I think you're going to enjoy hearing the Reverend Dr. Laura Smith speaking on the Good Samaritan. Shall we pray? Holy Spirit, come into our hearts that this word which we have read and heard and sung about may be your living presence. May it take root in our hearts and bear fruit in our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus, the word made flesh. Amen. So our text today was assigned to me, and I confess that when I received my assignment, I I felt a little fear. The Good Samaritan. I mean, what better known story is there in Scripture than the Good Samaritan? And what might I possibly have to say to you about such a story that you've known since Sunday school, most of you? Well, as I thought about this text, it occurred to me that whenever I read a parable, one of the questions I have for myself is, who am I in this story? And one way that parables have multiple levels is that we see ourselves in different people in the story. So think about the prodigal son, for instance. You can read the whole story of the prodigal son as I'm the prodigal. You can read the whole story of the prodigal son as I'm that judgmental elder brother. And it's a very different story. This is not the same thing as a kind of postmodern, you can make up your own truth. It's rather a recognition of the fact that, that the scripture is living and active. And it speaks to all of us in many ways. And as our situations in life change, it continues to speak to us. I remember visiting my great aunt once in the nursing home when she was in her 90s, and she had just finished rereading the whole Bible again. She had long ago lost count of how many times in her life she had read the scriptures, and she said to me, and yet every time, brand new, brand new. And that's the power of scripture, right? That even a well-known story like this every time is brand new. So who's who in this story? Well, the most obvious reading, I think, is that we are told to choose. Jesus is telling us, you got to choose. Are you going to be the priest or the Levite by on the other side? Or are you going to be this good Samaritan? That's the most obvious reading. Who are you going to choose to be? Are you going to be the Samaritan? Are you going to be the priest and the Levite? Now, that's it's an obvious reading, and it's an obvious choice. He makes it pretty obvious. It's so obvious that even the teacher of the law, who clearly doesn't want to give this answer, acknowledges that, well, obviously, the good neighbor here is the Samaritan, the one who showed mercy. I'm not sure we can fully appreciate how hard it was for that poor teacher of the law to say that, to choke it out. You know, that the rabbis said, Uh, that a Jew who accepts alms from a Samaritan is delaying the redemption of Israel. 
And the Sanhedrin said that if you see a Samaritan in need, you're not obligated to help. There is no obligation to save the life of a Samaritan. So the teacher of the law in saying, well, who is my neighbor, is not just making up a question. This is a question that's actually being debated and being answered by the teachers of the law. And their answer is pretty clear. Samaritans are not neighbors. Samaritans don't count as neighbors. Now, why do they have to reach this conclusion? I think we've got to be fair and acknowledge that there is, in fact, a little bit of tension here certainly in the way the Old Testament plays this out, between the first of the two commandments the teacher of the law quotes us and the second, the first being you love the Lord God above everything else and the second being you love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what if my neighbor and loving my neighbor requires me to get engaged in unclean things that are a violation of that first commandment of loving God the most? Throughout the Old Testament, God has told his people, you love me, that means you stay holy. You love me, that means you exterminate those people of the land. That's what you do. You don't mess with them. You don't intermarry with them. You don't have any, any interaction with them at all. They're not your neighbor. That's, that's not a new idea that this teacher of the law has invented in order to get himself off the hook. That's one way of reading the Old Testament. That's one way of reading precisely that first commandment. What does it mean to love God completely? It means I do not compromise with evil in the world. I do not mix with it. I I erect a, a firm barrier between myself and those who are unclean. And the Samaritans counted as unclean precisely because they had mixed. They had allowed their faith in God to be compromised, to be mixed with a lot of other religious practices. And that's precisely what God had said not to do. So these people are not just selfish and foolish people who are misreading scripture. There there really does seem to be a tension between these two love commandments. And the way to resolve the tension that the rabbis and the Sanhedrin had come up with was, well, okay, obviously neighbor mustn't mean everybody. Neighbor must just mean other Jews. That, That must be what this means. And so Jesus is doing something pretty radical here. Jesus is saying, from now on, you may never again Use the commandment to love God as an excuse for not loving your neighbor. From now on, you may never again say, because I have to love God, I'm not going to love you. You, You're just not allowed to let that tension stand. It has to fall. So what Jesus is doing here is the same sort of thing that he does in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Gospel of Matthew, where he'll say, well, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He's raising the bar, right? He starts out saying, okay, you've been told that you have to love this group of people, other Jews, in this self-sacrificing way, and I'm saying to you, the circle is bigger. The circle is a lot bigger, and you do not have the right to call on God to bless the narrowing of that circle because I am exploding that circle open for you today. And you have to love not just the people like yourself, but you have to love people not like yourself. The definition of a neighbor is getting very big. Now, what kind of love is this? I think uh, we live in a culture where love usually means something romantic or at least affectionate. It has a lot to do with our emotions. There's not a lot in this text about emotion. It's interesting, the Samaritan never even seems to have a conversation with the person that he saves. This is not about building relationships. That's not really what's happening here. 
The only emotion described is that he takes pity on him. And it's a very active kind of pity. It's not the kind of pity that probably the Levite and the priest felt, which was, uh, oh my, how horrible. Let me stay away from that. That's a different kind of pity. But no, this is the kind of pity that takes action. This is the kind of pity that looks at another person, another person in pain, and can make an imaginative leap and say, oh, I could be in that situation. Think about how horrible that would be. What would I need? What would I want? If that, if that were me, lying there by the side of the road, what would I need? That's what it is to take pity. And so it's, it's precisely loving someone else as yourself because you naturally know, this is not at all, and let's not go into this in great length, but this is not at all a command to love yourself. Okay, let's, let's just set that aside. Jesus is not telling you to love yourself. Jesus is assuming, of course, you love yourself. Now, when you are going to love your neighbor, you look at your neighbor and you say, I could be in that position. I could be the one who fell among thieves. So now what, what does that person need? That's what it is to take pity. And that, of course, is precisely what we find difficult to do. We erect these barriers of us versus them, and the them are those people we don't think are like us. The people we think don't share any kind of common humanity with us, and so we don't need to look at them and say, oh, I could be in that position, because obviously I would never be in that position. And there are all sorts of people who fall into that category for us. Now, some of the barriers that we put up in our lives are okay. Some of them are natural byproducts of being finite human beings. We are not capable of loving everybody in the world the way we love our families, say. Some of you may have heard about the, uh, the idea of the Dunbar number. There's an anthropologist named Robin Dunbar who studied all sorts of different cultures, and he says people can have stable social relationships with 150 people, and that's about the max. You start meeting more people, you have to kind of lose track of others. You, you simply cannot keep track of more than 150 people. That's, that's the size of the human brain, is his theory. But that, that seems to be how we're constructed. We just can't know everybody. And recently, uh, the magazine The Economist did a little study of Facebook. You know, Facebook people have thousands of friends, right? They said, actually, most people have 120 friends. That's the average number of friends on Facebook. And most people are actually having mutual communication with fewer than 10 of them. Because we have limits to how many people we can know and love. 150 stable social relationships, a social core of maybe 10, 12, 15. There's a reason why Jesus had only 12 disciples. Because he's really fully human. And as a fully human person, he simply cannot be in personal, intimate relationships with everybody. Not till after the resurrection, when things change a little for his humanity. But in his human nature, as he is on earth, he's also limited by what can be done here. So he is not saying that this Samaritan needs to integrate every single needy person into that social core. He is not even saying that that Samaritan needs to integrate every needy person he helps into that group of 150. He's not asking him to establish stable social relationships with every needy person that he helps. And for me, that's, that's quite a relief, you know, because I'm an introverted person, so my, my uh, 
capability for social relationships is probably a little lower than that 150. And I probably have about four people that I'm actually, you know, in, in close mutual trusting relationships with all the time who know things about the secrets of my heart. And if, if I'm required every time I love someone in, who's in need to kind of move them into that spot, well, I'm in trouble. But that's not what Jesus is requiring of us. Those barriers are fine. The barriers that he's challenging are the, the bigger ones, the bigger circle. The circle that, that makes you, you sit down on a plane next to a stranger and you start talking and you find something that you have in common. Oh, we went to the same school. Oh, we grew up in the same town. Oh, we have the same hobby. And you're looking for something that says we're in the same circle. We have something in common. But there are also people that you think are outside all of your circles who simply are not your neighbor, who simply have nothing in common with you. And that's the barrier Jesus is requiring us to lower. Fleming Rutledge has a sermon in which she's talking about forgiveness, and she tells a story about a trial, a trial in which an innocent man was found guilty, a black man found guilty by an all-white jury. And years later, some DNA evidence surfaced, and, and there was a process trying to ask for a new trial for him. And one of the original jurors was very active in that process. And she started agitating to get him a new trial because she felt so horrible about what had happened in the first trial. And she made a statement. She said, you know, the problem was that in that first trial, there was not a single person on the jury who looked at this man and said, that could be my brother, that could be my son. There was not a single person on the jury who was able to make that imaginative leap of taking pity and saying, there but for the grace of God go I. I could be in that situation. What would I need done for me? Every person on the jury assumed I would never be on trial for a crime I didn't commit. That could never happen to me. Clearly, if this is happening, if you're on trial for that kind of crime, you must have done something. You're not like me. And this juror was able to look back at her past attitudes and say, I was wrong. I didn't see this person as my neighbor. I didn't see that we shared a common humanity and that injustice can be done to me and to you. And I need to reach out to you and see you. Even, even if you had been guilty, I still need to treat you as someone who is not somehow in a different category of existence. I still need to treat you the way I need to be treated. I need to see you as my neighbor. Jesus says that he is our peace. He is the one, according to the book of Ephesians, who, who breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. And so all people are now one. And every other human being on the planet is now my neighbor. Now that's a terrifying thing to think about. Because every single one of us has some group that we think is beyond the pale. And it may be a racial thing, it may be an ethnic thing, it may be a national thing, it may have to do with your feelings about the war or about terrorism, or it may be people who are doing things that you just find so disgusting and so distasteful, maybe people who are involved in certain kinds of drug use, or people who are doing certain things in their lifestyle, and you think, that's just so, so opposed to everything I stand for. Those people are, are outside my circle. But whatever barrier you're raising up that's saying, Nope, nope, those people don't count. Jesus is saying, take that barrier down, because yes, they do. Now, I think that that is not actually possible 
for me to see everyone in the world as my neighbor. And so that leads me to the the second reading of this text. The second reading of the text says, who am I in this story? Well, I'm the one left for dead along the side of the road. I'm the one who has fallen among thieves. I am the one who appears so unclean that the priest and the Levite cannot help me and will not. And Jesus has taken pity on me. And Jesus, in all his holiness, has come from heaven to earth to seek me out, has has involved himself in my uncleanness, has taken it to himself, has risked all of the contamination that comes with being touched by me. And so because of this reading, where Jesus is the Samaritan and I'm the one in need, Generations of Christians have read all sorts of stuff into this text about how the inn is the church and the oil and the water are the sacraments. And I'm enough of a medievalist that I don't just laugh at that. I think, you know, there, there may be something there. But the important thing for us today, I think, is that the power to do that first kind of reading where I say, I'm going to be this good Samaritan, I'm going to take that barrier down, comes from the second reading where I say, I have received mercy. And because I have received such mercy, I can give mercy. Because I have recognized myself as unclean, because I have recognized myself as in need, because I have recognized myself as broken and dying, so much so that I could not even cry out for help, but had to wait helpless by the side of the road, until Jesus, on his own initiative and in his own power, came to me in grace. When I know that, when I can read the story that way, that gives me the power through my union with him to read it the second way. So that I act as a Samaritan not because I have power, but because I am a saved person, and now it is Christ living through me. And that makes it possible for me to do this impossible thing, to see everyone in the world as my neighbor. I think there's a third way to read the text. This is probably the least obvious way. But I think the broader context in the book of Luke gives us some basis for this, which is to say Jesus is the one lying beside the road. This story is part of the travel narrative in the book of Luke. It starts in chapter 9 when Jesus sets his face for Jerusalem and he's moving along the road to Jerusalem. And he's moving toward his death. And the first thing that happens in the travel narrative is he goes into a Samaritan village and he's rejected by the Samaritans. And the disciples are all offended for him. And they say, shall we call down fire from heaven and destroy them? And he says, no. No. Jesus is the rejected one. He is the one who has not only come to save us, but he's the one who has taken our place. The one who is beside the road, fallen among thieves. So that when we see someone in pain, we are to say, here in the least of these, it is Jesus. And when I help this one who is in pain, I am helping Jesus. Ken Bailey says that this whole travel narrative is a a big chiasm. And the parallel story to this one is in chapter 18, where Jesus again has a little um, exchange with a, a teacher of the law who says, how do I have eternal life? 
And Jesus says, you know, love the Lord your God. And the, the man says, well, I've done that. He says, so sell everything you have and give it to the poor. I think on this third reading, we see that, that Jesus is raising the bar again. So the first reading raises the bar from the Old Testament, says everybody's your neighbor. You've got to love everybody as you love yourself. But now Jesus raises the bar a second time. He says, you know what? In the new law, you, raise it, you have to love people more than you love yourself. You have to be willing to lay down your life for other people. You have to be willing to take their place. You have to be willing to identify with the one who is poor and who is suffering, who is homeless. And, and the whole teaching about discipleship that's going on around this passage here in the Good Samaritan story is all about sacrifice and surrender and living without, being homeless, being without family, being abandoned, and moving toward death. Now that's a bar I cannot clear. I can't lay down my life for the, the good of the world. Only Jesus does that. So even with his power moving in me, there is a level of love I can't show. But I step closer to it through his power day by day, closer to giving everything I have, everything, for the good of those who are the weakest, for the good of those who are the most poor, to give everything I have out of love for God. What Jesus is ultimately doing with this story, I think, is saying not only is there no tension between saying, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, but in fact, loving the Lord your God is the only thing you really need to do, and love of neighbor will flow from it. So the next story after this one is Mary and Martha. And Jesus says, there's really only one thing that's needful. There's only one thing. When you give everything, your whole self, when you sell everything, when you give your whole being to God and allow him to use you however, when you no longer worry about loving yourself at all, but let go of yourself, then Jesus carries you with him over that bar into the presence of the Father, into a different place, into a place of union with him through the power of the Spirit where we commune with him forever. Let's pray together. Gracious God, you know there are all sorts of barriers that we put up in our lives, and we ask you to show those to us right now. Open our eyes to ourself. Give us some self-knowledge and some self-understanding. Show us all the ways in which we are blocking other people from the circle of those we consider to be our neighbors. And you know that each person here does it, and we all do it differently. So speak to each heart here and show us what we need to do to become more like you. And Lord Jesus, we want not only to love everyone as we love ourselves, but we want to lose ourselves in our love for you. We want to lose our fear, our fear of being hurt and our fear of being victimized and our, our fear of being poor and homeless and alone, our fear of dying. Because you have faced all those things and you have conquered them for us, so nothing can touch us now. Help us to find our confidence, our hope, our truth only through our union with you only through our love for you, only in your love for us.
for you have sought us out and saved us when we had no merit of any sort. May your mercy flood us and overflow into the lives of all those we meet. We pray it in your name. Amen. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.